This is Wahasu, the World Happiness Summit. Feel the science. Good morning or afternoon, everyone. Good evening, wherever you're joining us from all over the world. We're so happy you're here. I'm Karen Guggenheim, uh, founder of Wahasu, co-founder of World Happiness Summit. And we are so grateful that you're taking the time out today to join us from all over the world. We wanted to take this opportunity to mark the importance of happiness and well-being in our lives, whether you are a member of uh, the Wahasu community or HSA or the University of Miami or Kripalu, Maria's community, whoever and wherever you're coming from, or if you're new to the science of happiness and are just exploring what we're talking about, we welcome you. Isaac, can you share with us, you know, what do we mean by, by fairness? It's a broad concept. What do we mean fairness in the workplace, in education, in our communities, and how can we elevate that? And how does that interplay with well-being? How can we provide feedback to other folks, things they may need to hear that may not always be terrifically pleasant? And I really believe it's important to be compassionate to others and ourselves at the same time in the same measure. So if, when you have to say something difficult to a colleague, to a friend, to a family member, it helps me to be in a compassionate place and to think what's going on in their lives. And the world is not a very happy place often. And the question that I ask myself is, through my actions, am I going to build allies or enemies? And am I going to be building relationships that will help me make the world a better place? Or am I contributing to the toxic environment that already exists plenty? So what is my responsibility to make others feel valued? And I want to draw a distinction pertinent to your question, Karen, between what I call a me culture and a we culture. You know, a me culture is about, I have the right to feel valued and be happy. A we culture is, we all have the right and responsibility to feel valued and add value so that we can all experience wellness and fairness. So that's for me a bit of a mantra. I want to live in a we culture and a we culture is about all of us feeling valued and having a chance to add value. That's why I think about compassion to myself and others. That's, that's really powerful. And I love how you brought that back to the we, right? And the, the, the collective, because we hear around the world, um, you know, I, I think all of us, we get these questions around how do we increase well-being in cities, right? And in governments and why, why, why aren't we getting better education of our kids, right? Like why isn't well-being in education such an important aspect until things until things happen where, where we, we need to explore that, right? Why aren't we um, 
kind of using this science that we have, we have enough evidence that we can use this as preventive medicine to alleviate problems, yes, and then to enhance the, the, the experience of the, the whole systems that we're talking about here. Um, Tao, that you, you do a lot of work around the world and speak uh, uh, around the world on different topics. And um, I think uh, awareness is one of the key uh, elements of, of what Isaac is saying, to have this self-awareness, to then be able to understand that really self-care involves the group, whether it's you know, your immediate uh, community at home and your relationship at home and your family, or at work or a larger part in the, in the whole ecosystem of, of a larger community in a city. What have you seen in this last year as the emerging trends around you know, self-awareness um, and uh, self-care and how is that impacting larger societies? Yeah, um, so before I start, please uh, do give me a, you know, a, a like or a not like in terms of the sound. Uh, it's still a little crackly. The, uh, I am crackly. A little bit crackly. No. Okay. Um, tell me if... Um... Is this better now? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It is better? Yes. Okay. Um, all right. Um, so... You know, there's a lot to say about this, um, this awareness. For example, there is, um, um, there is um, research showing that um, uh, just after 9-11, people's levels of awareness about their own well-being, about the well-being of others, actually became a lot higher. They became more considerate, uh, kinder, more generous. This was specifically done in New York City. Uh, so that's a great thing, you know, they, they saw that, it, you know, obviously a, a tragedy that, that, that happened, but as a result of it, people cared more. Uh, this lasted for uh, six months, maximum 12 months, and then New Yorkers went back to where they were before. Um, so the first question is, even if there is more caring, higher levels of awareness, will it last? The second thing, and this has more generally to do with awareness, is uh, the role of reminders. And I wanna talk specifically about the idea of, um, um, of what I've come to call rhetorical choices. What are rhetorical choices? Rhetorical choices are like rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question that the answer is obvious to. You know, we ask a kid, you know, do you want daddy to be upset with you? You know, most kids, I think, would say, no, it's a rhetorical question. It's there for effect. Very little effect, but it's there for effect. The thing, though, is that there are also rhetorical choices. For example, if I ask you, Karen, um, do you want to be uh, grateful? And do you want to appreciate the good things in your life? Or do you want to take the good things in your life for granted? Well, you would say, of course, I want to appreciate the good things. You know, anyone on this call or, or anywhere else in the world would say, yes, of course, we want to appreciate. And yet, most people, most of the time, um, fail to appreciate the good things in their lives. In other words, we have a rhetorical choice. Of course, I want to appreciate. And yes, we, and yet we don't choose appropriately. It's the same when it comes to care. 
when you ask people, do you want to care um, or do you prefer caring or taking for granted and, and ignoring the, the, the people in your life or your, yourself? Yeah, of course I want to care. And yet so many of us forget to do that. Now, this situation that we're in right now is a reminder. Um, just as, you know, 9-11 was a reminder. The question, though, is how do we take these reminders and make them more pervasive and not contingent on tragedies, whether it's 9-11 or what the world is going through right now? In other words, how do we make it part and parcel of our normal, whatever that means, or our normal lives? In other words, raise awareness mm -hmm. about the importance of caring about the importance of fairness, about the importance of kindness and generosity. Introduce reminders throughout our lives. Now, religions are pretty good at doing that. They constantly remind us of the kind of person that they uh, believe we ought to become. We need to do it also outside of religion in our civil society. I love what you said, Tal, because, you know, um... At, through Wohasu, this is exactly what we want to provide is the framework that all of you are talking about the, you know, the different well-being models and such that during a time where maybe we are experiencing um, people go, who are involved less in, in religion and the rituals and such, and there was such a sense of community through religious activity, right? But the world has moved a bit away from that, certainly in the Western world, in, in the U.S. and such, to, to redefine different, uh, spirituality in a different way. But through the science of well-being, it's amazing how, you know, there's so many of the principles that and virtues that provide support, like kindness, like forgiveness, um, altruism, caring, self-awareness that involves others. And I just think that it's so exciting to one, be, uh, be familiar with this, with this information that is science-based. So we have that backing that it feels good because my goodness, when we talk about this and we're energized and what I always find so, um, so, so impactful is when people say, well, if we're going to be worried, if we're going to be really investing in our kids being happy or our employees being happy, they're just going to be lazy. And I don't know about you all here on this, on this call, but when you're happy, my God, you have so much energy. And the last thing you want to do is just stay in bed. You want to be productive. You want to be creative. You want to call. You want to act. And you want to, you know, largely to do things that, that involve um, the benefits to, to yourself and to others. So um, this is a way that we can collectively, all of us here, and become ripples to say, we have a framework now. We have a framework that we can follow and we can elevate our personal well-being, our family, our communities. Um, and, and it has to be through practice and awareness, right? And so um, piggybacking on that, and Maria, we have a question from, from the group here and it's other-centric. How do we help others? So we've talked about things that we can do for ourselves, but how do we help others who perhaps are really struggling? We have a friend, a family member who is really struggling during this time and perhaps are not having this awareness. How do we help them um, uh, bring them into this reframing, into this, these, these tools that we're talking about now? 
So um, I think it really begins with this balance that Isaac pointed to of honoring and mattering to ourselves as well as honoring and mattering others. So holding a balance, filling the well first or filling the well continuously enough that we have something to give and attend because those of us with loved ones who are struggling know that these struggles of anxiety, depression, helplessness don't immediately disappear. Um, and, you know, this overarching frame of helping them move to better cognitions, cognitions that lead to better self-care and little slightly increases in optimism and hope that building it in the end is so important. And one of the great mantras, and I can, I love Tal to speak to this for the moment, that is very helpful, or one of the great positions that is very helpful with a loved one is to first grant them permission to be human. This is Tal's phrase, which is why I'd like him to speak to it. First grant them permission to feel what they feel, think what they think, and experience life as they experience it. Tal, could you unpack that a little bit for everyone? Sure, so the, the idea of the permission to be human um, is about um, uh, accepting, embracing any and all emotions. We, um, we find that uh, when we reject an emotion, it intensifies, it grows stronger. You know, the Buddhists talk about it today. We have a lot of research to show it, that there are essentially two levels of suffering. The first level of suffering is natural. It's uh, inevitable. It comes as a result of loss or disappointment or frustration. We all go through it, probably including the Dalai Lama. So that's the first level of suffering. The second level of suffering comes when we reject the first one. When I say to myself something like, well, Tal, you shouldn't be uh, anxious now. You know, you, you, you know the science of happiness. You should find a way of not being anxious. What immediately happens then is that my anxiety grows because I haven't given myself the permission to be human. When I say to myself, I shouldn't experience envy or, uh, or, or, or sadness for whatever reason, immediately, I feel more envious and, and, and sadness increases. It's paradoxically when we give ourselves the permission to be human, the permission to experience any and all human emotions, that's when they do not overstay their welcome. That is when they, they, they subside. And here, uh, and Maria, you always uh, you know, um, give examples from poetry. So I'll use one of the poems that, that, that you taught me uh, by Rumi, the guest house. Um, where he talks about inviting in any and all of our emotions as welcomed guests, as, as visitors from the beyond. And it's when we embrace and, and, and bring them in as guests, that's when they do not overstay their welcome. That is when they come in and they leave just as they came, opening us up to more pleasurable emotions. I love, I love that, Tal. And just as an additional step, because some of us are in relationship with loved ones who are struggling, not just with short-term bouts, but a kind of you know, regular or chronic experience of depression and anxiety and so on, is one of the great inquiries that's available to us through appreciative inquiry is to ref help reflect with them when you've had anxiety in the past or when you've had depression in the past and you have found your way through healthfully, what helped, what worked? We want to interview for success because to quote David Cooperwriter, success is not accidental. When we have had moments of growth or learning or high point moments, certain factors were at play. And when we can remind a loved one that 
you've had anxiety or depression or the feeling of helplessness in the past and you made it through, what sustained you? That with that beautiful compassion of permission to be human does both. It holds us in the reality of our feelings, our experiences and reminds us of our capacity. So that, Tina, that is, thank you for your question. I'm sure it's a question resonant with many in the um, cohort today. Thank you so much, Maria. Um, Isaac, uh, several of the people, and even Maria was talking about she's got kids in high school and college. And as an educator, what are, <laughs> I mean, my goodness, our, our, our youth has really been impacted by this. It's interesting because thank God, largely they're not affected physically by this pandemic, but so many of their rituals, we talked about rituals and the importance of that, right? And, and of socialization, um, they have really been impacted by this. What do you see in the universities? What do you see as far as the culture and how can we fo foster this culture and support them to build up these rituals and, and their well-being? I think lives for students and teachers have been incredibly disrupted uh, for a minority of students and students, not teachers. Uh, it's fine to, to study from home, but that's really a minority. You know, most students want to be with their friends. They want to stick to their routine. And I think uh, the, to the extent that Zoom is what's available, we have to make sure that we use this medium um, to replace whatever we can do that we cannot do physically. So for example, in my classes, and this is a doctoral seminar, uh, we start with a self-care activity. We devote the first 15 minutes of a doctoral seminar to check in with one another and each one of us, professor and students alike, each class we take turns preparing a self-care activity, which is about centering us and about checking in with our emotions and giving us permission to experience all kinds of emotions. And I think underneath what Tal was saying, I believe, is this tremendous need to feel like I'm not crazy, that I am just human like you, and I don't have to feel shame or guilt or weak or exposed or vulnerable just because I'm having these emotions. And there is a lot of peer support literature supporting the benefits of being with a friend and just giving your friend permission to be human. And maybe you can share that you have those moments too, because then it's normalizing for others and it doesn't make the person feeling anxious or depressed. I'm the only one feeling this way, right? That's the biggest lie. We are all having these difficult moments and I think as both Tal and Maria said, um, we have to give our students space to experience what they are experiencing, to honor these emotions, but at the same time to build new routines. Mm -hmm. Because what we know 
is that lack of routine is not the answer to not going to school, right? And feeling that we have to have control, even in a small way. So I talk about the minimally noticeable difference, right? Some people are afraid to start something new, like exercising or studying the violin or playing chess or whatever. People are afraid. And what I say is just, do three minutes a day. Do you see a minimal difference? That's good. Don't do more than three minutes. And tomorrow maybe you can do four minutes because self-efficacy is a great gift we can give to our students and to one another, right? And self-efficacy is about achieving something really, really small that hopefully can grow into other domains of life. That's really wonderful, uh, Isaac. I love that. I love lowering the bar, right? Almost like, you know, you're not, you don't notice that you're jumping over a bar, you're just walking over it and you have kind of this success and this, this jolt that does occur um, because of the, the, the reframing and the normalizing, right? It, it, what you're talking about also ties into hope right? That we're all in it together. And Tal mentioned Buddhism, everything ends. Good things end, bad things end. But the nature of life is that it's always changing, growing, and ending all the time, right? And so um, I, I think that we can also look at this, uh, this experience in a collective way and can unite us, right? Um, in this global trauma that now we have an opportunity to create something different and to show up a different way. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm questioning, was this, were these practices being done before, before the pandemic, like what you were just describing now with the classrooms that you did, that this self-awareness, is that, is that something that was happening before? Or is that something new because of COVID? Uh, some people selectively did them before. I started before. Um, but there is a lot more of that going on right now. And I think it's wise and it's an opportunity to honor all this range of emotions that we have been talking about. And I hope, as Tal said, that we remind ourselves that these are benefits worth keeping, not just for a pandemic year, but moving forward. Students learn better when they feel psychologically safe, when they feel whole, when they don't feel threatened, ostracized, marginalized, excluded, made fun of, we are all more creative when we feel that I am in a safe, welcoming, and inclusive space. That's the ABC of learning. You don't have that. You have students protecting their ego so much that all their mental energy mm -hmm. goes to self-protection as opposed to creation and innovation. Thank you, Isaac, wonderful. Tal, uh, this, I can see what Isaac is saying that goes directly into the workplace. To me, it seems the same thing. We can be more productive in the workplace if we are also feeling psychologically safe. What trends have you seen in the workplace? right now and what rituals can we implement in the workplace and one other thing that was interesting coming up in the chat 
how can what is the, the 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 relationship between permission to be human and then ruminating? How do we know that when we're getting into too much permission, you know, where, where how do we fine tune that and how are we aware of that? That we lay the space for it and then we can gently move those those emotions along and try to uh, t- try to uh, engage in in, in more um, positive uh, thoughts and reframing. Yeah, so let me actually begin with the second part of the of the question, which is distinguishing rumination from um, uh, healthy permission. Um, so I draw on the work of uh, Sonia Lubomirsky, who shows that when we experience painful emotions, um, it's uh, actually unhelpful to ruminate, to go over it again and again uh, uh, in our in, in in our minds. What is healthy is to either write about it mm-hmm. or talk about it. So keeping a journal, going back to the work of Jamie Pennybaker, uh, can be extremely helpful. Obviously, the talking cure, just sharing it with someone, um, uh, someone we can trust, uh, that can go a long way in helping us alleviate it. Just keeping it here, just ruminating over it, that in and of itself is unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would add just a third method of uh, expressing emotion, uh, giving ourselves the permission to be human beyond talking about it and writing about it, and that is crying, shedding tears. Um, you know, the research shows that when we shed tears, we release oxytocin, that's the love hormone, we release uh, opiates, the calming chemicals. So there's a great deal of benefit to just uh, having a good cry uh, once in a while, certainly during these times. Um, so, so, so that's about the difference between rumination and permission. What about this in the workplace? You know, I go back to the work of um, uh, Robert Greenleaf, you know, one of the great uh, organizational psychologists. Back in the 1970s, he asked uh, a very important question. And that is what constitutes extraordinary leadership. Now, extraordinary leadership is always important. It's especially important in extraordinary times, such as today, which is why I think his work is so relevant today. And when he looked at the extraordinary leaders throughout history, whether in religion, politics, business, community, he found the most important characteristic was that they perceived themselves and acted as servants, mm. servant leadership. You know, he went all the way back to the, to the Bible and he talked about how Moses, you know, God chose Moses um, when Moses ran after a, uh, you know, one of, one of the livestock and brought it back to the, to the flock. Um, he said, well, he's serving the animals. He will also serve my people. Fast forward to the, to the Christian Bible. Jesus came to serve the people. Fast forward to the 20th century. You know, um, Mahatma Gandhi served his people. Nelson Mandela came out of prison 27 years in Robbins Island. All the cameras are on him. What does he say? He had a bit of time to think about what he was going to say at that point. Here is what he said. He said, I am your servant. You look at it also in the business world. The best business leaders are servants. Anita Roddick, you know, in her book, Business as Unusual, what does she talk about? Serving, serving the employees, serving the customers, serving the environment. It's all about service. Leaders as servants. Now, what is the number one characteristic of 
the leader as servant. Number one characteristic, listening. Mm. Their ability to listen. This is what people need today. This is what our children need. This is what our employees need. This is what our partners need. This is what we need. You know, going back to the Bible, when, uh, when God chose, and again, whether you see it as a, as a true story or as a metaphor, it doesn't matter. There's an important message here. When God chose Moses, what was Moses' response? He said, I can't lead the people. You know, I have a speech impediment. I stutter. And yet God chose him. There is a message there. And the message here is that listening is more important than speaking for extraordinary leadership. And that's what our organizations need. And that's what our homes need. You know, many parents ask, so what, what can we do for our children? Listen first. What do we need today? We need to be listened to first. And that also has to do, of course, with Isaac's point of uh, procedural justice. To when, when you're listened to, when you're heard, you feel fairness and you feel like what you say matters. So there's a big difference between listening and hearing. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that I'd like to hear your take on this, Tao, that sometimes in awareness, because many times another person is speaking and we're having an internal dialogue as to, well, I, what I'm going to say, what are you really saying to me? What am I going to say back to you? And this is what you're saying. And that one, so you're having this whole um, conversation that it's probably not even relevant to what's being said in the moment. So I'd like to hear your take on that. And the other part about servant leadership, does it tie into, why is it so difficult? Why is our culture not ready to embrace it? Is it vulnerability? It's almost fear. It's, you know, that compassionate leaders are weak. Why do we have that mindset? Yeah, you know, I, I must say, I don't know where, where, where it comes from, that mindset, but it certainly exists. You know, what, what do most students learn in business school? You know, you as the manager, you have to come up with the answers. Uh, and, you know, that was more true perhaps uh, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Today, what we need as managers is to be able to listen and to be able to come up with the questions. Um, and that is what, uh, what, what, what great leaders do. Unfortunately, still, we are rewarded for answers. We're rewarded for uh, you know, arousing speeches uh, rather than our ability to, uh, to be present to whomever mm -hmm. is uh, around us. Fortunately, more and more research is coming out today, whether it's through, you know, um, uh, Ken Blanchard on, on, on servant leadership, whether it's um, um, uh, Jim Collins, uh, who talks about, um, um, about, um, ab about leadership at the, at the highest levels, what they are showing is that rather than uh, uh, charisma, rather than, than answers, what we need is being present and listen, and what we need to is ask questions. So hopefully organizations will catch up uh, with the research, and I suspect that what we're going through right now will expedite uh, this process to recognize what is truly important uh, in the realm of leadership. Thank you. I think that it's also important to recognize that we need training. You know, we need training in the workplace and and in, uh, in schools and universities, because this is, for some reason, it's both intuitive, we know it. I mean, this is what we're discussing here today. Nobody's saying, well, I never thought that would be, that makes sense. It all makes sense. Yet we do the complete opposite. 
and we raise our children and, and, and give them messages that don't tie into to, 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 to promoting really their optimal well-being. And we love them and we're so vested in them, but we're not, we're not doing the things that we're recognizing that in the last 20 to 25 years of research shows, this is the way that we need to start communicating. These are the kinds of leaders that we need to, or that the skills that we need to embed in leaders and foster in leaders and the leaders that, that should be leaders, you know, in the first place. And so I think training, awareness, um, teaching and training is so important. But what is exciting is that all of you have different programs, uh, methodologies, books, my God, blogs, chats, talks, where you can access this this learning and train and not train the trainer and bring the ripples about and write, you know, it, it, it's here, it's there. And somebody just posted in government. Absolutely. We need to demand it in government. This, we need to measure it, right? We need a language. Then we need to be able to measure it. And then we need to correct. And it's not who did what and hasn't done this. It's like, let's just do it with this opportunity. Now with COVID, let's just do it. We have the knowledge and, and we can, we can uh, definitely start doing that. Um, Maria, I'd like to ask you something that came up on the chat that I think you'd be, you know, such a great resource to answer this. What's the difference between self-compassion and self-indulgence? Because when we hear self-care, everybody thinks a spa and such, and that's nice. And I think that could be part of self-care, but some people might think that's indulgent. And, and I hear this also in leaders, right? This paradigm of like, well, you know, I'm not going to take vacation. I'm not going to do downtime. I'm just going to, you know, push through because that's indulgent or they, they, it's remarkable. These super smart, high achieving individuals putting off vacations or putting off downtime and, and it's eating away at them because guess what? They're human. So it's going to happen whether you want it or not, you're going to have biological and mental reactions. So what, how can we start educating people around self-care so, or self-compassion versus self-indulgence? I think there's a great confusion in the West certainly about self-care and selfishness that we, we confuse the two as if we don't matter. And so when we take actions that are self-kind like self-compassion or mm -hmm. self-respecting like building in time for vacation and so on, or even just choosing not to answer every single email, <laughs> you know, if it keeps you up till <laughs> three in the morning, you know, that we, we think we're somehow being selfish as if, as if the energy of the world is a pie. And if we take too much of the piece of the pie, we're not being fair there, you know, and the reality is there is a, as, and this is where Isaac started us off with, right? There's the mattering of the me and the mattering of the we, and they're both important. And self-indulgence is when we forget the we, we forget the other, right? And selflessness is when we forget ourselves and neither of those are healthy positions mm -hmm. or places of well-being. Right. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Tal. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you, everyone who joined us today. You're listening to the World Happiness Summit podcast. For more information, check out our website at worldhappinesssummit.com or send us an email at contact at Thank you for listening.